Please be seated. Just kidding. Good morning. We are now in chapter two of uh, the Revelation, part, so we're at part nine. I'm going to be reading Revelation 2, 1 through 7. It's uh, the letter, really, we, you know, people say, well, Jesus doesn't have any letters you see in the New Testament. Well, these are letters from Jesus to these churches. And this morning, it's his letter to the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2, 1 through 7, hear now the word of God. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would learn lessons from these letters to these churches. We do pray, Father, that you would uh, maintain your light, that we would not, and we would take to heart the idea that the lampstand could be removed, that we would be governed, Father, by a love for you, a love for one another, and truly a healthy, reverent fear of the living God over the fear of man. We pray, Father, that as we examine these words this morning, that you would sanctify our hearts, that you would alter and transform the way we think about all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are uh, popular posters that people have deemed fit to put on their front lawns which begin with the phrase, hate has no home here. It is the first phrase on a list of phrases that might be considered left-leaning cultural propositions. And when I first saw this, I I really didn't know where this was coming from. I um, publicly suggested that to accuse people that you disagree with on, you know, cultural, moral, or political issues, to be governed by hate may not be the beginning of a healthy conversation. And um, I found that, for some reason, that wasn't immediately um, viewed at in the greatest light, and I kind of got hit pretty hard to deign to say such a thing. What I've come to realize, and I'm sure many of you as well, is that accusing people who disagree with you of being hateful, of being bigoted, has become pretty normal. It's almost as if those words don't mean anything anymore because they're just so overused. And I think there is, at least in my observation, a bit of irony in how the person accusing others of being so hateful can become themselves so vicious. Whether winning or not, there is a festering anger that is percolating in our culture. I was having coffee with a a female pastor who I had just met. We were talking about, you know, church buildings and this and that, and we didn't know each other at all. And she only knew about me because she had looked our church up on the internet and kind of did a little research on me before we got together to have our meeting. And after today, she did display, I think, some bold honesty when she told me that she was raised in a house where she was taught that conservative people, which I guess she thought that was me, and she would be somewhat right, were simply evil people. I mean, she was honest. She's like, in my house, it, we were taught that conservative people were simply evil. And she had conveyed to me that it took really an act of will on her part to even agree to meet with me at all. 
So I really appreciate it. <laughs> the intestinal fortitude. It is not uncommon, and I guess this might be true of you as well, when I share my more Christian views of culture, for people to accuse me of just not being loving. Not only are you hateful and bigoted, you're just not loving and you don't care about some group of people. I mean, they, they truly believe that if you're on what we might call the right side of the political aisle, that you must be an uncaring person. Occasionally, when this happens, I'll point out, and I'm not saying this to garner praise, but I, I mean just more of a pedagogical point, that in my entire lifetime, I'll point this out, that in the 40 years that I would consider myself being an adult, there's probably not been one month in my life where I have not volunteered with the elderly, with orphans, with homeless people. I mean, I've, that has been a theme my entire life. And I'll, I'll go, you're accusing me of not caring, but I think my life indicates otherwise. And then they'll know enough of the Bible to say something like, didn't Jesus say that you shouldn't, like, share your good deeds to be seen by men or something like that? Aren't you trying to, you know, win the praise of man now? And so I'm like, wow, you know your Bible somewhat. <laughs> of course, in that same sermon, Jesus said that let, let your good works shine, that it might glorify your Father who's in heaven. Well, okay, we digress. But it, it seems like it doesn't really matter if you can demonstrate in your life that you actually do care. That The point is that the way I'm viewing you, I'm viewing you as an un- caring, unloving, hateful, and bigoted person. I don't care what you think you're doing in terms of trying to help. Now, I I open with this little conundrum because in this letter, in Jesus' first letter here to this Ephesian church, we're going to have to unpack in a moment two statements that at first blush seem to be in conflict with one another. This is a church that is being chastised because they have left their first love. All right, so that is the criticism that they're going to hear from Jesus. But they are, at the same time, being praised for engaging in a righteous hatred. So they are being chastised for not being loving, but they're being praised for hatred. Wow. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is one of those little enigmas that pastors, myself included, are tempted to just move past. Because I'm sure I'm going to be misunderstood. I'm going to work hard at being clear, and somebody's going to go home, and they're going to go, what did your pastor talk about? And they're going to say, well, he told us it's okay for us to be hateful. Matter of fact, he's encouraging it. So I'm going to work on that spiritual gift of hatred. (laughs) Nonetheless, we have to work this out. What, What is going on there? Perhaps, perhaps there should be, I'll put it this way, some type of hatred in your home. There, there's got to be something, right, along those lines, and maybe Just maybe these houses with these signs have more hatred going on than they realize. But the question is, is it the right kind of hatred? Like, what kind of hatred is something that God really approves of? Well, I'm not asking for answers right now. We'll get to that. (laughs) But yes, yes, but we'll get to that. All right, so right now, I mean, I'll just put that on the back burner right now. And you all look, you know, pretty attentive, so good. But let's move on to the text. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things I say, are these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, we have already discussed this at some level. The angel of the church is probably the pastor of the church. The lampstands are the churches themselves. But what I want to point out here is that particular churches have particular issues. 
all these seven churches aren't receiving the same letter. They're, re, they're receiving something kind of unique to their particular church. And Jesus is calling the pastors of those churches to be a source of either encouragement or addressing the vulnerabilities or addressing the failures of their particular church. The pastors need to know what's going on in their church. What, what do they need to highlight in terms of what's going on in terms of the people under their care to whom they're going to be accountable? All that to say, even though I think all churches should be in some sense moving in the same Christ-word direction, the ministry is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. Different things are different. People, different pe- people have different temptations. People have different levels of maturity. Um, when I'm speaking here, it's different than when I go to the mission and speak. And a matter of fact, people who go to the mission and hear me speak like those sermons better than these sermons. I don't, have, I don't use notes generally there because the audience there, they're, they're pretty new. They're young, and I'm keeping everything as simple as possible. So I'll go there, and I'll preach. I won't be looking at my notes, and I'll be more kind of engaged. And I found people are like, why don't you preach that way at Branch of Hope? But I'm still not buying that, so you're going to have to go with me looking at my notes. Even though it's, ministry is not a one-size-fits-all, at the same time, I think every church can learn from every other church. After all, think about this vision. Jesus has seven stars, which are the pastors, all in one hand. He doesn't have, they, he could have, the vision could have had seven hands. I mean, we had seven spirits. He could have had seven hands, but he doesn't. He has all the pastors together in one hand. It's ministry in that respect is a corporate enterprise. Churches are to be connected with each other. As a matter of fact, at the very end, in verse 7, Jesus is going to fan this message out, not only to that church, but to all the churches. We read in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So every church that is receiving this, including our church, needs to learn what the Holy Spirit is saying to all the churches. That's why we, you know, when we study the Bible, we study letters to the church at Corinth or Ephesus or Colossians, uh, Colossae. These are churches that we learn from in terms of the issues that those particular churches were going through. Now, of all the seven churches that Jesus is going to be having John write to. And a matter of fact, maybe of all the churches that we read of in the New Testament, we probably know the most about Ephesus. And there's a, there's a reason for that. We, in Acts, you see a lot of stuff about the church at Ephesus. There's a letter. There's an epistle to the Ephesians and so forth. So I don't want to go into great detail about this particular church, but I will say this, that in, in my research, that most of, was, most of it was left on the cutting room floor, and I decided not to bring it all to you, because there was a lot. There may not be a church, with the possible exception of Corinth, in the New Testament, more like Los Angeles than the church at Ephesus. Let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. It was big. It was a big city. It wasn't small. It was called the supreme metropolis of Asia Minor. It played a significant role in the Roman government. So the the government of Rome kind of viewed it as the place where they were going to kind of make things happen, enforce laws, you know, levy taxes and so forth. It was very religious, Not, not in a good way. They had the cult of Artemis. They had the worship of Diana. It was a hub of mysticism, magic, idolatry. You might say, as we so often hear today, is it was a very spiritual place. People say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. Though you would fit right in at Ephesus. And this was another thing that I found fascinating in terms of what has recently happened in our current culture. It was an asylum for Roman criminals. 
So if you were a felon, you had freedom at Ephesus to roam the streets. They, they just didn't put you in jail. They just let you go to Ephesus. You get to walk around the city, which is kind of what's happening in our. I mean, what you see is kind of like, wow, this, this is where human nature takes a culture. <clears throat> well, perhaps because of that intense, ungodly culture, we see maybe, and I don't know this for sure, the title, and there's a, there, you, what you see is a pattern in these seven churches. You see the, the title, then you see a commendation, then you see a criticism, and then you see a, a warning and so forth. We're going to see that with some exceptions. But the title we see here, which is coming from chapter 1, refers to the pastors being in the hand of Christ. And maybe because of the difficulty of the ministerial setting, that's why it's conveyed that way. And I'll tell you what, I as a pastor feel comforted with the notion that Jesus is saying, I got you in my hand. And what's also interesting here is the, the verb in chapter 1, where they are held in his hand, is different than the verb in chapter 2, the one we just read. The verb in chapter 2 actually has a strong, firmer grip on the pastor. And there's also a little difference between chapter 1, because in chapter 1, John sees Jesus in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. But here in chapter 2, he doesn't just see him in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, in other words, kind of in the church sitting someplace. He's actually walking in the midst of the golden lampstand. Well, why is that significant? Because the walking kind of denotes this idea of, of participation, action, and not only that, intimacy. Uh, as I would mentioned earlier, there's probably, there are more allusions in Revelation to the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. Some 500 allusions where you're going, there's a phrase here that I need to look in the Old Testament and see what that phrase means. And this is one of them. This idea of Jesus walking among his people. We read in Leviticus 26, 12. I, this is God speaking. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. It is a covenantal promise. It is God telling us, what am I, here's what I'm going to do. And then we see, actually, John in his gospel, John, the same John who wrote the Revelation, wrote that Jesus became flesh and walked among us. Literally tabernacled among us, or tented among us. You know, we, we're traveling, and he's pitching his tent with us, and going with us is the image that the pastor is to get as he communicates to his congregation. Moving on, verses 2 and 3. And this is also a theme we see over and over, and that is uh, I, what Jesus knows. Like, he knows what's going on. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. So there's the commendation. There's the kind of encouraging words of Christ. I know what's going on in your church. And he's not hesitating to kind of give those words of encouragement. I often, probably on a weekly basis, wonder what Jesus thinks of our church. Like, what's his opinion of our church? You know why? Because it's his opinion that matters. And I'll tell you something, you know, it's not my, I don't know if style's the right word, it's not my style to be harsh or overbearing and, you know, bring out the hammer. There have been times when I have done that. There, you know, some of you will recall one time we were singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and I, had I had, think I was actually doing a sermon series on the hymns that we sing, and so I had studied the history of that, that song written by Martin Luther, but where it had been sung throughout the course of Christian history. So many times when the, the walls were caving in, when the, you know, the, the, the oppressors of the church were coming in and people were about to die, they were singing, a mighty fortress is our God. And one day we were singing that in church and I looked around and I have to tell you, 
people were distracted. It was lackluster. Oh, mighty fortress. And I just, I remember stopping the service. And I'm going, this is an embarrassment. You, you, you don't have focus. I felt like a coach watching my team warm up, knowing they're not ready for the game. You know, you're looking all over the place, and then when you sing, it's like, I, I don't have a good voice, and I don't really want to sing it out loud and stuff like that. I mean, take it for what you will, but your lack of focus or your lack of zeal and singing and participation and all that stuff, you can fool your neighbor and you can fool me, but you can't fool Christ because he knows what's going on. And we are called to kind of evaluate ourselves to make sure that at some level we would reach an accommodate, some type of commendation from Christ. Well, we are all tugged in so many directions as a church. Don't kid yourself. Our church as well tugged in so many directions in terms of what we, who are we trying to please? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? John, again, in his gospel, introduces what I have found to be a very unnerving little phrase that we all need to think about, I need to think about myself. In John 12, 43, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. One can easily imagine the pressure in a, high, like a, in a place like Ephesus, a highly religious and intellectually self-confident community, the pressure of capitulating to the culture. But this church wasn't all bad, right? They were, they were hard at work. They did not give up easily. And they had no tolerance for evil. They were willing, and I pray this is you, they were willing to put teachers to the test and ferret out the liars. Right now, I'm, uh, I'm in the process of um, vetting our new five potential elders. And they come to my house, and we sit in my office, and, you know, I, I am bringing out the hammer. I'm kind of like, there, this is no holds barred. There's no question I can't ask you, and you better answer it, because they're going to be the elders in this church. And if I were you, I would not be casual about them being elders in this church. I, you, if you don't make at least one of them cry, you're not doing your job. But that's what they're being commended for. They're being commended for this idea that people are coming in and going, here, I'll give you a little word of the Lord. And they're like, you're not an apostle. i got some questions for you. By the way, these new potential elders will be giving an exhortation at some point in the next few months. And there will be Q&A. And every one of you should be here. And that Q&A, which will probably start at, I don't know, 1130, should go to like 4 o'clock. You wonder why Ephesus was so good at that. I'm just going to give you some, I don't think it's mere speculation. I think there's some good reasons why Ephesus was probably good at being doctrinally sound. They, for one thing, they had Timothy as a pastor. They were very um, much uh, catechized by the Apostle Paul himself. It is at Ephesus that we read of the eloquent preaching of Apollos. And even though Paulus was a great and eloquent a teacher, Priscilla and Aquila, took him aside and corrected him all the more. There seemed to be a real emphasis there. It's also at Ephesus that Paul gave the warning, at least to the elders at Ephesus, that savage wolves were going to come among you. You need, you need to guard that, the sheep from these people. So it was very much an, an emphasis in terms of perverse teaching will come into this church. And they were fighting the good fight. And they were not weary. They weren't growing weary in doing so. And let me tell you, that can be tiring. There's great pressure to tamper with the message. 
And I'll tell you something else. There's great heartbreak when you see those under your care being won over by the winds of pagan thinking. You, you see that happening. You see what people are believing or saying, sometimes younger people, because they've been so influenced by you know, the university system or what have you, and you're kind of going, where are you getting that? And it's heartbreaking when we see that. Ephesus had no tolerance for that. Their doctrine was their strength. So in, as much as Ephesus might be like L.A., they were also kind of, this church was kind of like the OPC in a way. They're like, we're going to fight for our doctrine. And maybe, just maybe, the weakness is the same. Because they had a weakness. We read on, verses um, 4 and 5. Nevertheless, not words you ever really enjoy, right? Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, at the risk of sounding self-deprecating, I, I feel like this criticism really hits home in what we might call the Reformed community. Not historically, by the way, in the Reformed community, but in the current Reformed community. I mean, and I don't want to bring everybody into, you know, my, you know, kind of view of this, but I think this is true when I look at myself, when I view the history of me. Sound doctrine, I'm going to tell you, the pursuit of biblical Christianity and what the Bible says has always, for me, been a priority and a pursuit. It's like something that day one, I'm like, okay, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? And I often found myself in discussions that became heated. And I wanted to win the argument. You take this little weird turn, right? Like, I am going to win this argument rather than win the person. I wanted to beat more than I wanted to bless. And it hit me pretty hard at one point when it dawned on me that I was regularly violating the third commandment, which again, coincidentally, was part of our Heidelberg Catechism questions today. And by the way, a couple of things about that. We, the Heidelberg Catechism is not part of our secondary standards. People are like, oh, do we, we, you know, our secondary standards, basically our statement of faith protracted, are the West, is the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, not Heidelberg, not the, what they call the three forms of unity. Nonetheless, these are great liturgical and pedagogical tools. In other words, these are things we view very highly and we think we can learn from. So they're part of our liturgy. But just so you know, because somebody asked, is that, these are, are these our standards? No, they're not our standards, but they are very, um, very uh, kind of coordinate with our standards, very similar to our standards, and, and I think they're very good for us to learn. Going back to what I'm saying, though, is that I found that I was convicted because when I was opening my mouth and arguing and seeking to win the argument, it dawned on me, by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, it was what I was doing was violating the third commandment, which is, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And when we open our mouths on behalf of God, without the express purpose of honoring and glorifying God or blessing others, we are using the name of God in a vain and empty way. We should take a deep breath before we get up there and say, well, you know, the Bible says or God says or what have you. You, you want to do your prayer. You want to do your homework. You want to be, make sure that you've got everybody's best interests and God's honor at heart. Interestingly enough, again, and, you know, and those of you who know what, that I'm a theonomist know that I don't have a problem with what was being said, that the violation of this commandment can, in fact, bring the death penalty. Did, did any of you take a deep breath? When you looked at that and you're like, oh, wow, this church, number one, is encouraging me to hate, and they tell me I deserve to die. So let me just, let me help you out with that. Um, do I think it deserves that? I do think it deserves that. I, I'm not a Marcionite. You guys know what the Marcionites were? They were the guys who were going, well, the God of the New Testament is the new improved God. That God of the Old Testament, well, I'm glad that he's gone. 
That is not the way we read our Bibles. Here's the way you read that. That is what I deserve. But by the grace of God, that is not what I'm getting. We deserve it. You see, what happens is people go, well, that seems so harsh. We just need to kind of create some other system to, you know, to justify such harsh words, rather than kind of going, that's what I deserve, and yet here I am, alive. I mean, think about David and what he did, right? Rape slash adultery slash murder. In the Old Covenant, did he deserve to die? Yeah, he deserved to die, but he didn't die. Was it because God was going, yeah, maybe I'm a little bit harsh? No, it's because God is a merciful God. This is the way we have to read those types of passages. Not, wow, it's a good thing, you know, God's not in a bad mood anymore, something along those lines. It's a matter of kind of recognizing that God withholds his justice and exercises mercy. Nonetheless, I think it's important for us to make sure that when we speak of the things of God, we're doing it in a very loving, thoughtful, wise manner. Well, moving on. They had left their first love. That's the criticism. So it wasn't as if they were no longer Christians, but they were moving in a direction. There's a direction that church was going. And the end result of that direction, we're going to see in a minute, would be to have the lampstand removed. Now, it is a little bit difficult to pinpoint just exactly what was going on that caused Jesus to say, you've left your first love. I mean, was it love for one another? Were they weak in that? Was it love for Christ? Was it love for a lost world? Maybe, maybe, you know, I mean, we can evaluate as a church where we're weak in that. I look at our church sometimes and I'm like, well, we, we, get, we really kind of love each other. We can't get people to leave. You know, I mean, I lo- that's kind of nice. You see the family loving one another. Your, your love for Christ, it's hard for me to evaluate. I can't see your heart. But sometimes I wonder, what about our love for a lost world? How's, how are we doing in that? Are we, are we praying for our neighbors? Are we inviting them to church? Do we care about them at all? Are they going straight to hell and we're just kind of like not willing to blow the trumpet and so forth? I mean, these are things for us to evaluate about ourselves and us to evaluate as a church. What was going on with Ephesus? It could have been any one of those things or a combination of those things. But whatever it was, the zeal that they had once had was ebbing. They, they, were, they, they were running strong and fast, but they weren't doing that anymore. And so what does Jesus do? He gives a prescription. What, what do you do? Now, you look at this prescription coming from Jesus, and I think ministerially, there's great value, because even though this is a ministry uh, a prescription for them in particular, I think this could apply to so many things. This could apply to so many things in our lives. First, in the prescription, he says, remember Remember, you know, what it was like in the beginning. Remember that that love that you once had. Because you don't have it now the way you had it before. We are to remember. Now, the verb tense here, by the way, actually means keep on remembering. Continually remember. Simply put, You need to get your mind around the way it should be. So for somebody like me who came to faith as a teenager, I remember kind of early zeal. And I remember that kind of going up and down, up and down. For those of you who were raised in the church, you might not ever remember kind of having these ups and downs. It doesn't really matter. The point is, you need to get your arms around the way it should be. Then he moves on. Second, repent. Literally, that means you need to change your mind. That's what that word means. It's not a matter of just kind of knowing something. It's just—it's a, a matter of, of assent. It's a, you're, this is not just an academic pursuit. You're kind of going, I remember what it was. And you're not just stopping there going, yeah, those were the days. 
as if it's some nostalgic pursuit, you're kind of going, I need, I need to change. And, you know, there are people who actually will argue that Christians, once they come to faith and repent at the beginning of their spiritual life, don't have to repent anymore. You repented once, and that's it. Yet this is written to Christians to repent. There is this continual repentance that we must ever engage in. Finally, do. Do those works. We are told to be doers of the word. Same John in 1 John 3.18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I remember um, telling some guy who I, I used to buy him a cup of coffee on a regular basis, and I didn't that day. And I said something like, well, I had all the intentions of buying you a cup of coffee. And he looked at me and he goes, yet here I am still thirsty. <laughs> Point taken, right? It's like my good intentions aren't going to feed you. I need to actually do something. We, we are not, let me just tell you, we are not, this came up in our, my quiz of the potential elders, we are, we are not to wait for some special operation of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to wait until the Spirit moves me, and then I'll do the right thing. We're, we're not, we are not to wait until the mood strikes us. When I'm in the mood, I'll do it. Simply put, friends, we are to figure out what is right, and that right is determined by the Scriptures. By an act of the will, we are to change our minds, and then we are to do the right thing. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, there might be a lot of other stuff going on in there. It might be hard for you. You may need accountability. You know, you can wage this war any way you want. But those components need to be part of the way we live as Christians. I need to know what is right. I need to make a continual decision. And then I need to simply do it. All the days of my life. There have been many churches, even in my lifetime, but certainly throughout the course of history, that are no longer, in any real sense, churches. This seems to be happening with great regularity in the West, especially over the last hundred years or so. But this is the warning that Jesus gives. He will remove our lampstand. You're just not a church. You you might have a cross. You might have a sign that says church. What I find interesting is how churches call themselves anything but church, right? Christian center, Christian fellowship, Christian this and that. They don't want to be called church. And organizations that are not churches at all just have seized the word church. But it's Jesus who will determine whether or not you're a church. And if you continue to go in the direction you're going, he's telling this church, you will not be a church any longer. I will remove your lampstand. And that is something that happens with regularity throughout the course of history. Ephesus was moving in a direction void of love. And there's, by the way, there's only one aspect of this prescription that is repeated. And the word is repent. He says it twice. Well, the natural temptation, as we move on to verse 6, in a church like Ephesus, that was sound in doctrine, but lacking in love, and probably oftentimes, because they were so sound in doctrine, were accused of being lacking in love because of their pursuit of sound doctrine. I mean, that's been an experience I've seen. Like when you are going, you know, we're, we are going to be uncompromising. That Naturally, what comes that, with that is an accusation of not being very loving or forbearing or tolerant. So that is kind of maybe what's happening here. So they're sound in doctrine. They're lacking in love. So the temptation might be, well, let's soften our dedication to the truth. Maybe we're just pushing the truth too hard. Maybe we're pushing doctrine too much. It's almost as if, and I I, I can only guess, that in order for that not to happen, Jesus ends by reemphasizing a commendation. 
And that brings us to what we started with in this sermon. But this you have. Just in case you're thinking about compromising your doctrine, let me tell you something that I like about you, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, there's all sorts of speculation about what the deeds of the Nicolaitans were. And uh, I, have to, I found, at least in my studies, there's no real solid answer to that question. I think it's safe to conclude that the deeds were evil deeds of some sort. But what's remarkable here is that the same church that is criticized for lacking love is praised for hatred. Wow. So how do we work that out? Well, let's, let's start by uh, at least looking at one verse that I'm sure none of you have posted on your refrigerator. And I just picked one. But there are no shortages of passages in the Bible that call us to hate evil. Psalm 97.10, and then you'll see, you'll see some other, and you, you could just con, your concordance out and look up. They're all, it's all over. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. The author of Hebrews, writing of Jesus, writes this. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It's it's a hatred of evil, a hatred of wickedness. Let me just tell you, indifference or a casual disposition toward evil is not a godly attribute. Now, this is not, I want to define this a little bit. This is not a license to be unduly harsh or unnecessarily unfriendly. All right, so don't take this as some, hey, I'm naturally a hateful person. Now I'm going to let that kind of run. I'm going to go with that. But I do fear this, and I, th- I fear it in myself, that we have lost a sense of the deadly nature of wickedness. I, I don't think we recognize just how deadly it is. What a soul-killing enterprise wickedness and evil actually is. We just kind of are like, hey, it is, it happens, whatever. I'm, I don't particularly like it, or maybe sometimes I enjoy it, but it is what it is. That is not a biblical, godly attribute. Now, you, now you, I, know, I know where we live. It's funny when I talk to people and they're like, oh, you don't understand, I have friends who are this, and as if I grew up like in a monastery. I grew up in Hermosa Beach. Like, I, I get what's going on. I understand my environment. I understand that we need to tread lightly in in the snake pit. I get that. But here's what you don't want to forget. That those snakes, they are full of deadly venom. And if you let those snakes have their way in your life, if you don't have a healthy aversion in regards to those snakes, you're going to end up in the hospital or worse. I, I think we just need to grasp that Jesus is saying, this is something I like about you, that you hate what's going on here, which I also hate. And it's not some type of capricious fleshly hatred. It's a recognition of what this goes to, what it produces, and it produces death of soul. We should seek to cultivate an uncompromising aversion to that which is evil and false. But since this is such a delicate subject and one that I am confident that I will at some level be misunderstood in teaching, let me go a little further in terms of qualifying godly hatred. All right, so I want to talk, we're going to finish with this. First, the hatred, at least here, is against the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It is not against every individual. Certain behaviors should be viewed as detestable. Now, 
maybe, you know, since you don't know that these are the Nicolaitans, maybe you got a, a deed in your mind, right? You're thinking of something. And let me tell you this. If you can't think of something, you maybe have gone too far already because we are surrounded by fill-in-the-blank deeds in the culture in which we live. But it is here, at least here in this passage, it's the deeds, not necessarily every individual. Second, and this kind of relates to that, the hatred is against a, what has been called a class of people, not individual people. Now let me qualify what I mean by that. One of our favorite psalms, Psalm 139. If, you, if it's not your favorite psalm, it should be one of your favorite psalms. But it ends with this imprecatory psalm, Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? So we see there another kind of call to a godly hatred. But that hatred is aimed at a community that identifies itself or at least as being identified as a God-hating community. Do I not hate those who hate you? So you've got this community, but that by the very nature of the community is a God-hating community, and that community should be a community that we as Christians hate. We hate that that exists. We hate that it's there. At the same time, and I know people in communities that I would put in that community, at the same time, there are individuals in that community that we should love and seek to get them out of that community. So there's this idea that's going, look, at I'm going to try to rescue you from the fire of that deplorable, dark, hate-filled, deadly, hellacious, you know, heading for the blackness of darkness forever community by getting you out of it by the grace and the love of God. Finally, The righteous hatred is governed by our thinking God's thoughts after him, not by our personal likes or dislikes. This is an accusation that comes up a lot. I hope it's not true of any of you. You don't pick a religion that accommodates your preconceived hatreds. You know, you don't go, you know what? I kind of naturally hate those people. Oh, this religion hates those people? I'll join that religion. No, a godly hatred is a godly hatred because we are thinking God's thoughts after him, that we have been transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it is something I think we should be very careful with. Going back to Psalm 139, you know, you go to Psalm 139, and he says, do I not hate those who hate thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. Remember what he says right after that? Because we have a song we sing about it. Search me. It's almost as if the psalmist is going, okay, Lord, check me out on this. Search me. Know my hurtful ways. Know my, know my evil thoughts and reveal your way to me. Because I think this could be dangerous territory when we allow our, only, our own fleshly impulses to take over. So that's a funny little dance. We want to hate evil. We want to hate those deeds, but we don't, we don't want to become people who are governed by a, an ungodly fleshly hatred. Finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. In a true spiritual battle, there will always be a temptation to give up. And make no mistake about it, you're in a spiritual battle. I mean, I was tempted, and I guess I'm going to say it now because I'm looking at how long, you know, the sermon is and what have you, but nonetheless, I'm going to say it. Um, because, you know, one of the commentators who I really respected said, look, we are, there are two kingdoms, and they are warring kingdoms. These two kingdoms, kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, they're at war with each other. You, I'm saying that because we have in our reform community this idea that there's a common kingdom. You know, that there's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of darkness, and there's this common kingdom. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think there's a common kingdom. We have to recognize that there's a war going on between two kingdoms, period. Not some other third, nebulous, ambiguous, floating around kingdom that the Bible doesn't really, in my understanding of the scriptures, even talk about. And we are called, in the battle that we are in here, and we're going to see it many times 
throughout the Revelation, we are called to finish the race. We don't give up. Seventeen times we're going to see the word overcome. Overcome. That's like that Winston Churchill speech, right? We will never, ever, 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 I don't know how many times he says it, never give up. You get, you get tired of the battle. But, but fatigue is not an option. Fatigue, let them have the fatigue. We need to fight the fight till we draw our last breath. Jesus is saying, all the way to the very end. H.B. Sweet notes that this call of overcome gives a tone of victory in this. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look at you will win. This is, you're going to win. You need to stay the course because the final victory is yours. The tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God symbolizes the life-giving presence of God. And here we are at the last book, going all the way back to the first book, right? That from which Adam and Eve were separated because they were cast out of the garden paradise. Christ restores. You know what he restores? If you were here yesterday, you'd have heard everything. He restores all that is lost. Perhaps if Adam and Eve cultivated a righteous hatred for the lies of the serpent, the subsequent pain and death of history would not have happened. Of course, that's mere speculation. But what is not speculation is that we are called to overcome. We are called to persevere with an eye on the promise of true life in the true paradise. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that uh, we would be a church that would ever evaluate ourselves, that we would judge ourselves lest we be judged, as the Apostle Paul writes. We do pray that we would enjoy, Father, being a minister for your message Help us to ever seek to be light bearers. We pray that the lampstand would ever hold up the light of Christ. And we do pray that we would have a good, godly, healthy aversion, hatred for that which is deadly. And yet at the same time that we would not give up loving even that which can be so difficult to love. We pray that you would help us not to grow weary of doing good, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.